Welcome, Welcome to I'm another inspirational message from the chat. Um, we pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. So God is here with us, right? So we're working our way through Genesis. Has anyone not been here for part of the Genesis series thus far? Ooh, quite a few people. Now, did we end up getting, I don't think we ended up getting our slides. So we've been studying the Bible for years without slides and pretty pictures. You're just going to have to look at me, I'm sorry. Um, so for those of you who are new to 8.30, we normally love to go a bit deeper into the Word of God. And we normally have 15 minutes of digging into the Word of God. We call that going deeper. Then 15 minutes of practical application. We call that going forward. Unfortunately, COVID has changed our plans this week. We have a few of our team isolating. So you've just got me, I'm sorry. But we closed last week. We heard from Pastor Bron and my husband, Andrew. And we started the story of Jacob. And where we left off last week was that Jacob has two sisters for wives, Leah and Rachel. And he's been working for his uncle Laban. And at the end of last week, Laban left, um, Jacob left his uncle's property with his caravan of his family, his servants, and his animals to set out on his own. You might remember that before this, Jacob was the one who was chosen to carry out the Abrahamic covenant, but he goes about it in a dishonest way, tricking and lying his way into his father's blessing and stealing his older brother Esau's birthright. And it's in the wake of this deception that he had originally fled his father's home to avoid his brother's anger. His brother had vowed to take revenge and to kill him. And today we see Jacob slowly make his way back to his father's homeland, learning some important lessons along the way. The account of Jacob and his brother Esau actually carries some of the most descriptive and most emotive language used throughout all of Genesis. It's a tale of almost epic blockbuster-style proportions that's full of drama, intrigue, romance, murder, reconciliation, and it's worth reading the story in full, which we're not going to do today. We're going to break it down. But there's some things to know before we start. So the patriarchs of the Israelite nation are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, son, grandson. Abraham, his character is marked by faithfulness and conviction to stand apart from his culture, the first one to do so. His son Isaac's life is marked by consistency and courage and recognition that sometimes following God comes at a price, and he almost paid a very high price for that. Jacob's life is marked by struggle and search for truth, and it's truth in the existential sense, you know, truth of identity. Jacob's life asks the question, who am I? To what story do I belong? And what part am I to play in that story? If we were to sum up Jacob's personality, Jacob is a fighter. He's a go-getter. He's a doer. The name Jacob actually means the one who supplants or deceives. And you will remember in previous weeks we've learned that names carry huge amounts of significance in the book of Genesis. If you were to think of one word to sum up Jacob, you would have to say tenacity. Jacob is described as jostling with his brother Esau even in the womb. They were twins, but Esau was born first. In fact, Jacob comes out of the birth canal grabbing his brother's heel. All I have to say to that is his poor mother. <laughs> Jacob spends the first half of his life in a crisis of identity, wanting all that belongs to his brother, the eldest. Now, Jacob is the sort of guy who will achieve his goal no matter what it costs him. We could probably all identify a Jacob in our lives. And Jacob has paid some pretty big prices to get ahead up until this point in his life. He's deceived both his father and his brother. He's fled his father's homeland in fear that his brother's going to kill him in revenge. Jacob has two wives hostile to each other. Now, to be fair, I would probably 
feeling quite hostile if I was married to the same man as my sister. Jacob's now left his uncle's employment and is living a nomadic life, sort of a Bedouin lifestyle. And throughout this portion of scripture, Jacob's going to be given the name Israel. Israel is the name that's given to Jacob that will then be carried through an entire people, an entire nation, the Israelites. Now, you would have to say that Jacob is not the most obvious choice to be the figurehead to represent and epitomize God's people. But in the character of Jacob, we are reminded that God's ability to do great things through people is more about God than it is about the people. God doesn't require our ability. He's looking for our availability and our humility. In Hosea 12, it actually describes Jacob. It says, Israel, that means Jacob, is surrounded with deceit. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him, that's God, at Bethel and talked with him there. You must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for God always. So it's 22 years since Jacob ran away from Esau. 22 years since Esau vowed to take revenge on Jacob. And Jacob's now returning. He's left his uncle's employment. Um, it's actually the, the homeland that Abraham had initially left way up north that Jacob's leaving and returning to his father's homeland. It's 22 years and Jacob's finally making the journey home. Last met, Esau swore that he was going to kill Jacob. So Jacob, as he returns, is said to be filled with fear and distress. It also says that the angels of God traveled with Jacob. And as they make camp, Jacob actually calls the place Mahanaim, which actually means double camp. So Jacob says his you know, physical camp of him and his entourage, but he says that there's another camp with them. It's God's camp with them. May we go through life living that principle of Mahanaim, that we are in a double camp. We have our own ability and our own strength, but we also have God camping with us walking through life with us. Jacob, as he's traveling to meet his brother Esau, sends a messenger ahead. The messenger returns, saying that Esau's coming to meet him with 400 men. Jacob panics at this point. Jacob, Esau's coming with 400 men. He must be about to attack me. And he has good reason to think this. He did a pretty bad thing to his brother. The historic era of Jacob's is of his own making. It's his own fault that he's put himself in this awkward position through his own deception. So you see that throughout Jacob's life, he makes a lot of poor choices out of his own desire to get ahead. But we learn an important lesson here is that God doesn't require us to compromise our character in order for him to fulfill his promise. Jacob had disguised himself as his brother Esau and stolen the blessing that was meant for Esau. And he used the fact that his father was blind to achieve this. You know, I often think if only they had cataract surgery back in Jacob's time, we would have saved a whole lot of drama. <laughs> but when you actually look at the wording of the blessing that was intended for Esau, the wording says when Isaac blesses Jacob thinking that it's Esau, the blessing that it gives him is actually around material possessions. It says, he says, may God give you heaven's due and earth's riches. May nations serve you and may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So the blessing that's given to Esau surrounds material things. But before Jacob flees his home to escape Esau, Isaac gives Jacob another blessing. And it's a blessing that's given honestly with Isaac knowing full well that it's Jacob before him at that time. And the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob has a very different wording. It says, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase in numbers until you become a community of people. 
May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land, the land God gave to Abraham. So Jacob has had this word on his life from a young man that he is to inherit the Abrahamic covenant. He's the younger son, so thinks he has to go and sort it out in his own strength and act deceitfully and wrongfully in order to make it happen. But when you look at this, Jacob never needed to steal Esau's blessing. He never needed to act dishonorably because there was a blessing for him all along. Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, concocted this scheme to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob. But it turns out there was a separate blessing for him anyway, a blessing that carried the Abrahamic covenant. So I really want to reiterate that lesson that God will never ask us to disobey him or compromise our character in order for him to fulfill his purpose. But despite Jacob's poor choice, God still protects him and still blesses him. Unfortunately for Jacob, he has to suffer with the consequences of his choice. How much fear and stress and worry does he have to live with because of his own poor decisions? Jacob is actually so afraid as he goes to meet Esau that he divides his family into two camps, thinking that, well, if Esau slaughters half of my family, at least the other half might get away. You know, to Jacob's credit, God's told him to return to Esau, and despite his fear in that moment, he obeys God, and he persists in traveling towards Esau despite his fear. So to his credit, he actually has great courage there. However, had he behaved honorably in the first instance, he would have saved himself a whole lot of grief and stress. How much so is it like that with us? You know, God will always fix our mistakes. God can take all our errors and turn them into something beautiful, but we will still have to live with the consequences of our decisions. How much better is it to follow God's way in the first instance? You have to say that Jacob is the most tenacious of all the patriarchs, and he's actually the only one who has all of his children included in the Abrahamic covenant. We now come to the next chapter of scripture, which is the night before Jacob is due to meet Esau. They're traveling, 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 and they've got one more day's worth of travel before they meet. And there's this interesting encounter, they say, that Jacob wrestles with God. It's this mysterious or enigmatic portion of scripture that's quite hard to understand. Jacob and his family have made camp, and it's the night before they're due to meet. Jacob sent everyone across a fort, and he's said to be all alone, and we know that he's filled with fear and distress. And I'm actually just going to read this portion of scripture out because it's so interesting. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. This is a reasonably confusing passage. What does it mean? It actually reminds us of a few chapters earlier, the men who visited Abraham. And we call this kind of encounter a theophany, where God appears in human form to his people. So God appeared to Jacob in this moment, and they, they wrestled with each other. Is that a bit unfair? You know, that's a, you know, a bit unfair of a balance in that, you know, God fighting with Jacob. Is it cruel of God to allow Jacob to wrestle him? The wrestling match here is actually the culmination of Jacob's lifelong struggle up until this point. And the wrestling match is actually an externalization of an inner conflict that Jacob's dealing with. 
Jacob has been trying to succeed through his own strength and, and cunning his entire life. And it's in this culmination that Jacob is fighting God, trying to prove his own strength. But with one touch from God, Jacob's defeated and put into his place. I sort of think about Jacob fighting and fighting against God and pushing God and hitting God. And I sort of think about the times that my toddler tries to push me off the bed and he's got all his might and he just can't budge me. Or, you know, you see that image of, you know, a little toddler running as hard as they can. You put your hand there on their head and they're making themselves hot and sweaty and they're just achieving nothing. You sort of think that must be what it was like when Jacob was wrestling God. When you see a child having a tantrum or a fit of rage, sometimes you just need to sit with them calmly while they let it all out and hold them and remind them that you still love them. That's actually what God does with Jacob here. He allows Jacob to wrestle him, to work through the process and get it all out. But he then quickly and clearly demonstrates how great his power is with a single touch. But he doesn't leave it at that. He then speaks gently with Jacob and blesses him. And Jacob's given a new name here, Israel. Just as Abram was given a new name, Abraham, so Jacob is given a new name, Israel. And it signifies this new start and a fresh identity. So in Genesis, to be given a new name signals great power, calling, and character. To be given a name is profound. And the Israelites as a nation will carry Jacob's name and identity forevermore. The name Israel actually means he contends with God or one who struggles with God and men. Jacob's life up until this point has been marked by struggle. He struggled with Esau in the womb and in life. He struggled with his uncle Laban. Now he's struggling with God. Jacob's default setting is fight mode. Jacob has struggled with God and with man and survived, and he comes out of the struggle on the other side with a new identity and a new calling. And it's in this encounter that God breaks down all that Jacob has been before, all of that tenacity, all of that ferociousness, all of that pent-up energy. He breaks it down. He breaks down the supplant to the deceiver and builds him up anew as the one for whom God will fight. Jacob calls this place Peniel, which means the face of God. And whenever you read through Genesis and there's a discussion around the face, it's a really important concept that conveys a sense of identity. So prior to this encounter, prior to this wrestling match, Jacob's facing one of the biggest crises of his life. So in our lives, crisis in our lives can challenge us to the core. Crisis can challenge us to the deepest level of self, challenging our self-confidence, challenging our identity, challenging our sense of meaning. And when we go through this struggle, it can often be used to break down any misconceptions we might have about ourselves. And we can finally come to a place of seeing our circumstances through God's eyes. In the struggle, we can finally come to a place where we have true confidence despite our circumstances because we know what it says in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What do we wrestle God over? Does God need to tear something down in our lives to remind us of how we should relate to him? In my life, I often struggle with trying to manage things in my own strength, just like Jacob. I often exhaust all human endeavor and striving and try and sort things out myself before I finally turn to God and just ask him for help. It's been a hard lesson to learn at times, but I know that my attitude in that moment is one of pride. It's not giving God his due place as Lord of my life. It was actually exactly this time last year that some of you might know we actually found ourselves stuck in England with no way to get home and our flights cancelled in a very different time in the world. We had no job, no visa, and we're about to have no home. And there was no option to get back to Australia. I felt a lot of personal responsibility in that moment for having put my family in that position. 
and I did everything in my power to try and fix it. I spent hours on the phone and I actually did a couple of nationally televised interviews on Channel 7 and I hate being in front of the camera. We were told that there was nothing we could do but maybe try for a flight in about four months' time and that would cost about $40,000 in addition to what we'd already paid. Um, we had nothing left in that moment to lay it at God's feet. Then out of the blue the following week, a representative from Singapore Airlines called me and said, look, you try and pull a few strings. Would we be happy to fly a few weeks later? Would we be happy to go to somewhere else in Australia? Would we be happy to pay a bit more if it came to it? He said, leave it with him and then see what he could do. And a few days after that, he rang me and said he'd secured a flight for us. It was 10 days after our initial flight. It was the exact same flight number as the one that had been cancelled into Sydney, and there was no extra to pay. Now, I don't know what conversations went on behind closed doors or how he pulled those strings, but I know that there was nothing that we could do in that moment but trust God, and God provided abundantly. It's not about me, but back to Jacob now. Jacob finally comes through the night, through the wrestle, through the struggle, breaks through to his new identity, and then meets his brother Esau. When Jacob prepares to meet Esau, he's full of fear. He's preparing for the worst. He then has this encounter with God that changes his future. And at their meeting, Jacob's prepared for Esau to kill him. But what subsequently happens is something so totally far from what Jacob could expect, that it must be God. I am absolutely certain that God was working behind the scenes and that Jacob's encounter with God the night before was vital in the events of the next day. The passage says, Esau ran to meet Jacob and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. It's actually a really beautiful chapter of scripture and it's a beautiful scene of reconciliation written with the most descriptive language that it is worth reading out in full. And it actually reminds you as you read it of the parable of the prodigal son when the father runs to the son. Jacob shows this change of character as he meets Esau. He has changed from being this cocky, tenacious upstart to a man who's full of humility, who bows before his brother and calls himself his servant. Esau then goes on to father father the nation called the Edomites. Edom actually means red, a reflection that Esau was a red and hairy man. Some people might find that very handsome. I do. Um, They lived south of the Dead Sea, south of what we know as Israel. That's where the Edomites settled. And Esau's descendants actually established themselves as a kingdom long before Jacob's descendants. They become a kingdom first. And when the laws laid down to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 23, there's actually a specific instruction regarding the Edomites. It says, do not despise the Edomites, for the Edomites are related to you. Despite that, the Israelites did maintain authority over the Edomites in recognition that Jacob had taken the birthright of the first son from Esau. David, King David, goes on to conquer the Edomites years later, and they remained under Israelite rule for 130 years. When you look at the character of Esau, you're actually seeing that the Israelites or God's people were called to be set apart from the world, but Esau is very much of the world, and it's reflected in the fact that he marries against his parents' wishes and marries into the culture surrounding him. We're going to move on to the next passage of scripture, and I just want to say it's a fairly challenging passage, and it's somewhat confronting and somewhat triggering, so we're not going to go into too much detail because of that. But Jacob and his family are currently residing just outside this time called Shechem. I'm not going to say Shechem every time, I'm just going to say Shechem, is that right with you? Um, But this portion of scripture surrounds someone called Dina. So Jacob and his wife Leah have a daughter who is called Dina. 
And while they're residing outside this town called Shechem, um, Dina is attacked and defiled by the prince of Shechem, whose name is also Shechem. This story is a reminder of how happy I am to be a woman, not only living in the 21st century, but living in Australia. When I read this, I think, actually, all of Genesis, I feel sorry for the women of Genesis. It was a hard life. Now, the prince's father, Hamor, is the ruler in this area, and he's tried to convince Jacob that intermarrying between them will be beneficial for trade and for prosperity. Now, this proposition is highly offensive to Jacob's family, who are carrying on Abraham's tradition of being set apart from the culture around them. You know, to intermarry and to assimilate with the Shechemites would defy that tradition of being set apart. Esau did exactly that and grieved his parents. What happens next is much too graphic for me to read out to you, so I'll let you read it if you have the stomach. But the result is that Dina's brothers Simeon and Levi massacre all the men of Shechem, while the rest of the brothers loot the city. What starts as moral outrage and defense of their sister's honor descends into a scene from a horror movie. And it all starts because the Israelites are supposed to be set apart as God's people under the Abrahamic covenant. So as such, the suggestion that they would assimilate with the Shechemites is highly offensive. So what starts out as righteous anger descends into rage and sin. It reminds you that in Ephesians 4.26 it says, In your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say do not be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. I mean, Jesus demonstrated righteous anger, but he didn't sin. I want to make a little segue here and say that when we look at the injustice of the world and the abuse of the poor, the abuse of children and women. We should be outraged when we see that. You know, when I look on the news at girls in Afghanistan who can't leave their home and can't go to school, as a woman who values education, that makes me burn with anger. Righteous anger in and of itself is not wrong because that should motivate us to action. That should motivate us to cause change. But in your anger, do not sin. That's my segue. So Jacob, in the upshot of the events at Shechem, Jacob leaves Shechem, and he and his family return to Bethel. You remember that Bethel is the place where God first spoke to Jacob in a dream. The name Bethel trans translates to the house of God. So when Jacob returns to Bethel, God reaffirms the promise that he had made to both Abraham and Isaac and says that this covenant will pass down through you and your line. And God says that a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. He's referring there to both King David and the eventual coming of Jesus. He says, the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. You'll remember that the covenant of Abraham covered some main themes. It covered descendants, it covered a land, and it covered a blessing to those around them. So that promise is passed down to Jacob. But before returning to Bethel, Jacob instructs his family that they must get rid of all foreign gods. They must purify themselves and change their clothes. It signifies a fresh start, a new beginning. In all their travels, Jacob's family have become caught up in the world, caught up in worldly things. But remember that when God first called Abraham and Sarah, he was setting up this family who would live a life that is set apart from culture, set apart from worldliness and set apart from all that's preceded them and live a life in total devotion and obedience to God. Jacob has strayed from that call, particularly in Shechem. God's people have behaved no differently than the warring, marauding, pillaging Canaanites. This distinction of these people who should be set apart has been lost. So what they do before they return to Bethel is Jacob buries all the pagan memorabilia. It's almost like a baptism. By burying these items, Jacob signifying death to the old way and commencement of a fresh start. When they return to Bethel, God blesses Jacob and his family again, once again reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant, and Jacob finally gets to return to his father 
After the depraved episode in Shechem, it's a return to all that is good and wholesome, and you actually breathe a sigh of relief as you read this chapter. And God reaffirms that Jacob has a new name, Israel. It's a fresh start, a new beginning, and a new identity. So Jacob's encounter when he wrestles God was unplanned, unscheduled, and unexpected, but left him transformed. Such experiences of God often happen metaphorically at night, when we're alone, afraid, and close to despair. God has this miraculous way of stepping in right when we need him the most, and suddenly we realize, just as Jacob did, that surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. So whatever season or challenge that we're facing, be comforted that God is in this place, even if we can't feel it. And like Jacob, we can realize that God was there all along, but maybe we were preoccupied or distracted by things of the world and we didn't recognize it. One of the other main themes that runs through the account of Jacob is the theme of love. The truth about love is one of the central themes of Jacob's life. It's interesting, in the life of Abraham, the concept of love only appears once. In the life of Isaac, the concept of love appears twice. In the life of Jacob, the concept of love is mentioned seven times, more than any other character in all of Genesis. Jacob also learns that love can both unite and divide. Love divided his childhood when Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. It divided the two sisters who he married when he loved Rachel more than Leah. And it divided his sons when he loved Joseph more than his brothers. And we, we will get to the story of Joseph in coming weeks. But when you read Genesis, there's an undercurrent. It's one of the deepest and most subtle messages through the book of Genesis is that of a God who has care and compassion for those who need it most. It's in the background of the grand narrative of Genesis that we see a lot of secondary minor characters. We see Leah, we see Esau, we see Hagar, we saw Ishmael, we see Joseph's brothers. All these secondary characters who are feeling heartbroken, who are feeling unloved, and you actually see God provide care for them. It's a beautiful theme that God cares for each of those who are hurting. Leah grieves because her husband doesn't love her. She is honoured with many children, and it's actually her son Judah whose line will extend to King David and eventually to Jesus. And it's Leah who is buried with the patriarchs in the cave with them and given great honour in her burial. Esau was the daddy's boy. Jacob was the mummy's boy. Jacob steals the blessing of the father that was meant for Esau. And actually, when you read the account, you can almost hear the pain in Esau's words all these thousands of years later. Esau cries out, bless me too, my father. Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Esau wept aloud. And this is, you know, a manly man weeping aloud. It's heartbreaking when you read it. But after their reconciliation, Jacob returns the blessing to his brother. And Esau's family go on to form a nation, the Edomites. And their kingdom is actually established before the Israelites as a nation. And in that law laid down in Deuteronomy, the Israelites are instructed, do not despise the Edomite, for he is your brother. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we can get this impression of this judgmental God. But when you dig deeper, we actually see the undercurrent of this God who shows compassion and care, especially for those minor characters who are marginalized. The God that we know and worship, who is love, who is merciful, who is gentle, who is gracious, was the same God back then. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As it says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. 
The mercy and grace of God are so evident throughout Genesis. Jacob makes so many mistakes, but God is committed to him. God is not offended by Jacob's fight. He allows Jacob to wrestle with him. He then reminds him of his love for Jacob. He gives him a new name, a new identity, and a fresh start. After that, Jacob still continues to make mistakes. He gets it wrong again and again and again, but God every time just gives him a fresh start and a new beginning. When I was a lot younger, I used to worry that grace and forgiveness was given at the time you became a Christian, but after that you were expected to behave yourself. I am so thankful to have learned that when Jesus died for my sins, it was once and for all. But when I asked him into my life, he gave me grace for my sins past, present, and future. John Newton, who was a former slave trader, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and he put it beautifully. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. So there's a couple of things I want us to remember from Jacob's life. The first is that to struggle does not mean that God is not present. The second is that God redeems our mistakes. And the third is that God will never, ever, ever require us to compromise our character in order for him to fulfill his promise. So if you're waiting on God for some sort of breakthrough, the temptation can often be to try and fix it yourself or to take a shortcut. But God would never, ever, ever ask us to act deceitfully in order to achieve his purpose. In Philippians 1 verse 6, it says that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. It will be him who carries it through to completion. God is not looking for our ability. He is asking for our availability and our humility. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.